Hello and welcome to the Remembered podcast, part of our 2018 Armistice project, There But Not There, remembering those who fell in the First World War through Silhouette and Tommy installations and raising funds in line with our three aims to commemorate, to educate and to heal. Today is the last in our series and we hope you've enjoyed hearing from us, our guests and everything we've shared with you. Going forward, we're committed to continuing our drive to collaborate with and fundraise for charities who provide vital services to veterans in need of support today. And we look forward to sharing our plans for next year with you all soon. You'll be able to find links to everything we talk about in the notes below. And you can also find out more on our website, therebutnotthere.org.uk. Follow us at Remember2018 on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch more directly, you can email myself, Nikki and Fred at supporters at tbnt.org.uk. This weekend, we were delighted to see our Tommies and Silhouettes appearing in commemorations all around the country. From local community events to projections on iconic landmarks like Edinburgh Castle, the Angel of the North, Tyne Bridge and the Tower of London, amongst others. We will link to the pictures of our projections because they are pretty amazing, so you can see if any of your local landmarks were lit up to honour the fallen. We were also delighted to see our Tommies featuring in coverage of Remembrance Day with David Dimbleby and Sophie Rayworth. Let us know if you spotted them anywhere else. As you all know, we've spent this year raising funds for our beneficiary charities through the sale of our Tommy figures. Help for Heroes will be a recipient of these funds you helped us to raise, so we wanted to catch up with them and see how the money will be put to use. With that in mind, we are speaking with the National Head of Psychological Wellbeing at Help for Heroes, Karen Mead, and Pippa Wisby, who's Corporate Partnerships Account Manager. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi. Uh, we're in the Help for Heroes offices, which is we hope an improvement on sound quality, and it's certainly more comfortable place to be doing things. Um, yeah, lovely to yeah. <laughs> you can see the shot, which is nice. Let's start with Karen. Karen, the money from Solo uh, Our Tommy Figures is going to be going in part to Help for Heroes. Your department is obviously psychological well-being. Tell us a bit about the psychological services that Help for Heroes provides and why these are so important today. Sure. Well, our psych well-being service is about ten years in the making. Uh, it was originally set up to meet the needs of those that were coming forward for more physical health issues actually. So it's it's evolved organically over time and it's starting to look more and more to address the changing needs of the wounded, injured and sick veterans that are actually coming forward. And, and what that's starting to look like is they're coming forward and asking more directly for psychological support. So initially, in the early days, we were there to provide support um, while they're on sporting or reintegration type of activities. But over time, they're actually coming forward specifically saying, you know, actually what we need is some support for our mental health needs. So reporting difficulties with sleep, um, nightmares, difficulties with anxiety, managing to hold down a job, reintegrating into civilian life. So all of those types of things. And that's what our psych service is really there to provide. So we provide a really important source of assessment and referral for those that are having um, coming forward for support. So approximately 36% of the veterans that we see are actually coming forward asking for referral and support for PTSD. So it's quite a high number there that we would um, assess, provide some initial support to, and then refer on to um, providers like the NHS or Combat Stress, or Walking With The Wounded, who are able to work with post-traumatic stress. 
Uh, we ourselves provide support for those with mild to moderate mental health difficulties and, and what that means is people um, are able to get some support about up to six to eight sessions which is really looking at helping with managing stress, dealing with low mood, some difficulties with um, problem drinking. We've also got programs at the moment we're piloting to support family members, support the needs um, not only of the the veteran themselves, but also the need of the family. So improving with communication skills and things like that. So it's training. Yeah, so it's absolutely. Um, the program we have at the moment, um, we're running in collaboration with KCL, and that's actually looking at coaching family members to be able to encourage their veteran to go and get support. There's a really big challenge um, around helping those that do have mental health needs actually putting their hand up and asking for help mm. and what we know is that the sooner these guys come forward for help the better the outcome so a big part of the work we do is actually around reducing the stigma um, not just the stigma for the veterans themselves but the stigma around mental health needs um, when people are going through their training um, and just broader awareness throughout the community about mental health. It's, it's a really important part of making sure it's okay for people to know that coming forward for support, we're going to support them where to access that care, but also it's going to be done in, in a way that's about empowering and building on strengths and in a non-stigmatising way. So at that first point of contact, do you often find it's family members that you're dealing with? Quite often it is family members that will be the ones that give the nudge. Um, but increasingly, it is actually the veteran themselves coming forward, and I think that's a that is a really positive sign. Uh, a huge amount of our referrals are actually self-referral, so um, that is people coming forward. These beneficiaries are coming forward themselves and directly asking for some form of support. But we know that for uh, you know the ones that are coming forward, there's many, many more that still aren't mm -hmm. coming forward. Um, and, and moving forward, we obviously know that um, the needs of those who are leaving the army or the forces, over time, their needs actually get more complex. So the sooner we can get people coming forward and asking for help, uh, the better really, the better it is for their family, but the better it is for that individual as well. So it's been 100 years since the First World War and obviously the world that we live in now, um, like as we said, we're looking out you know, a fantastic view of the Shard. The world we live in, in so many ways, is so different to the world they lived in in 1918. Are you seeing any difference in the in the help that people need psychologically? Um, I don't know how much you know about shell shock, as it was called then, but is it very different, or are we still seeing the same problems even a hundred years later? Um, it's it, yes, obviously, shell shock is something that um, I think a lot of people have heard of shell shock. Um, and, and PTSD is really, um, it's a modern label for the similar type of symptoms. So it, it, shell shock itself, the title, I mean, you, you look back in ancient Egyptian times and they actually had hieroglyphs on the walls of the pyramids showing the impact of ancient Egyptians' soldiers I'm coming back saying they were blind and deaf from, from combat, so the, the somatic symptoms of trauma. Wow. So it's it's not new, it's just 
um, the way we package it and speak about it has absolutely evolved, but the symptoms themselves um, are, are, are not new. So in 1918, they were describing um, soldiers who had paralysis, um, had blindness, deafness, um, shaking, along with all of the symptoms that we might talk about now and more aware of now, like nightmares, um, flashbacks, re-experiencing panic attacks and things like that it's so some of the symptoms have kind of changed but the core is still really the same we also know when we look cross-culturally the way that people respond to trauma is slightly different as well so some of these symptoms um sort of somatic symptoms that we're talking about blindness and deafness and and, and that sort of thing um that is actually more common in in certain cultural groups than it may be in um a british population so yeah so I guess the needs are, the core needs are still really the same how we work with that has massively changed yeah yeah drastically changed back in World War One um, for example it, it sounds quite horrible to think but people were actually shot as deserters mm. initially in World War One for what we now may consider to be shell shock or PTSD or combat stress, depending on what label you want you want to put on it. Um, so it was in around about 1915 and 1916 that because the high numbers that were being shot or court-martialed for desertion, it was realised something needed to be done to actually, rather than um, look at what what these soldiers were doing think about why they might be doing it. And perhaps there's something to do with the unique nature of war that was actually causing them to, to want to leave their post. So how it was worked with back then is actually in, in World War One, often people were simply repatriated home. That was considered to be the easiest way to kind of treat uh, PTSD at the time. Obviously, that's not really a treatment. It's just pulling people out of that that conflict zone, and then they would have to go on with their lives, often without much treatment. A big shift obviously came about. There was eighty thousand British soldiers that were actually medically discharged. I guess you'd call it these days because of their shell shock. And when you think about the logistics of that and the impact that that had on resources I guess when you really needed every man to be to be there and, and fighting um, the attention started to shift more to okay well perhaps we just need to screen these guys a bit better um, so the screening in World War II changed drastically so they actually excluded quite a lot of people um, from military service anyone that had um, any serious mental health condition and such as um, psychosis or was institutionalized for example but also those that they thought may be predisposed to uh, psychological vulnerability I, I guess that's using their words they use the words psychological neuroses um, what they found is actually the screening didn't really work I was gonna say surely you can't yeah. really tell how people no, are gonna react no and and that's a really I mean it's a really um, important way that attitudes have changed it that there was a huge shift in psychiatry um, as a result of these world wars and and the focus went from thinking about um, it being almost a flaw or a problem of the the individual or using the, the terms back then screening for an abnormal mind 
that's the that's the words that they used. Wow. Obviously, we've never used you know this kind of language that we wouldn't use now. But there was a shift from screening for an abnormal mind to screening for a normal mind under abnormal circumstances. So there was this recognition that putting a normal human being in a conflict zone day after day after day was actually it was almost why wouldn't somebody be impacted by this and psychiatry up until then had really been focused on you know locking people away asylums um and and almost this kind of idea of vulnerability where this saw a huge shift in this idea of actually how can we support people who are completely normal functioning and, and actually generally quite resilient how can we help them to manage this absolute monumental stress unreasonable horrendous horror of war so how can we protect them and help them to stay well and now we look at ideas of psychological fitness and the the ministry of defense here in the uk is actually starting to look at programs targeting mental health in the same way that they would target physical health so making sure your body's fit fit for battle it's actually being psychologically fit as well so um, this whole idea of actually it's really normal to have difficult periods in your mental health in the same way it's normal to sometimes get an injury you know if you're training you might get a knee injury or an ankle injury, you need to rest it, to ice it, to elevate it, all those kind of things. It's, it's now looking at mental health in that same kind of way. So the key principles have really changed since World War One. It's now really looking at early intervention. It's looking at helping people to recover quickly. It's looking at reducing the stigma around that and actually it's, it's considered normal, more normal rather than not, um, to sometimes to need to take a step back and, and to get some support. So it's um, a very drastic shift, I would say, in the approach and the attitude that the soldiers in World War I were coming home to. Um, compared to um, you know what the soldiers now are hopefully starting to experience um, that shift. So, in terms of the actual support you offer, what sort of counselling and what kind of projects do you have which which help them in their recovery? How how does it work? So we offer a range of different strategies. So yeah, you, you mentioned that we've got um, quite a wide scope of support so yoga and nutrition and things like that so help for heroes as an organization is really focused on holistic recovery and trying to um, engage those who are wounded injured and sick and their families in um, in life again and improving their quality of life and adjusting to um, no longer being in the armed forces so we offer such a wide range of things because obviously every individual is slightly different. Um, the core um, string that, that goes through all of that is this idea of social inclusion and social connection and being around other people that get me. So being around other veterans and other um, families is 
incredibly therapeutic in and of itself. And we know that in that environment, often um, our beneficiaries will start to um, break, break down those barriers. Um, they're more likely to start talking about maybe more serious mental health issues that they're experiencing. So they may start to open up about difficulties with sleep or alcohol. So it's that environment itself that actually allows people to start opening up and talking um, rather than um, those programs themselves being an active form of treatment. It's, it's giving them a, a space to connect um, start to focus on what they can do rather than what they can't because so often um, you know there's a, a sense of not really knowing where you fit um, so it helps to identify that feeling of how you belong and what you're good at. Uh, we do offer more specific evidence-based psychological treatments as well though so it's really important to think about um, mental health on a spectrum so at one end of the spectrum we've got these kind of holistic inclusion programs that get people in and get them comfortable, help them start to feel a bit better, a bit more connected, but we also deliver evidence-based treatments. And so that's our Hidden Rooms service, which is staffed by psychological wellbeing practitioners. It's um, been evaluated and compared to have similar outcomes to what you get if you access the same level of support within NHS services. The difference is obviously is that the PWPs, the psychological wellbeing practitioners that we have, they um, are very familiar at working with people from armed forces backgrounds. So they, um, our program is slightly tweaked and adjusted to make sure that it's the correct language because the language is so important. And staff that are working with our beneficiaries really understand the military culture and how that may sometimes and often has an impact on some of the issues that they're experiencing. You spoke a second ago as well about collaborating with other mental health charities and other military yeah. charities. How closely do you collaborate a, with them and how do you differ, I suppose, in your services? And then on the other side of it, with the NHS, do you, are you able to work closely with them too or is it you have to keep the two separate? No, we, we absolutely work really closely with um, partner organisations and it's essential that we do so. So a good example of um, the collaboration work that we do is uh, at the moment we provide some grant funding support for NHS to increase their capacity to deliver statutory care. The funding is coming from Health for Heroes to the NHS? Some of that is actually to support um, NHS to be able to deliver the skills and the intervention that's needed wow. more quickly um, because the expertise certainly lie within the NHS. There's some brilliant skilled clinicians there, but it's just often about being able to get our beneficiaries into the right treatment at the right time. And quite often, um, it, one of the difficulties is around wait lists and wait times. So we do work really closely with NHS to help not only we refer directly into NHS and combat stress, walking with the wounded, but we also help to um, improve those referral pathways. So there's less, I guess, double handling of information because that's a big challenge, obviously, for, for the veterans we work with. Um, trust. So coming forward and asking us for help is, is a big challenge for so many. So we don't want them to then have to go and retell their whole story all over yeah. again to somebody 
um, that they don't they don't know necessarily or may not have that kind of military association, which is which is a big thing that we do actually. Um, a lot of our clinicians will talk to beneficiaries that come forward and, and do need help, and it may be for more serious mental health needs like PTSD. Um, and a big part of what we do is actually, I guess, encourage them to get that support and reassure them that actually the right people to help you here are, often is the NHS providers. And, and there are quite a few specialist NHS providers out there that, that they get it. You know, that's their bread and butter, their day in, day out. Um, is working with veterans so some of it's about taking that stigma away as well yeah um, so we do we do work um, very collaboratively with both NHS but other partner organizations as well and quite a lot of our referrals come directly from um, either NHS or combat stress as well so other organizations may assess somebody and say you know what actually Help for Heroes may be able to support you uh, because you, we may offer programs in family support or couples that, um, support. Um, we do a lot of psychoeducation, what you call psychoeducation, so helping people just kind of understand um, and normalise their symptoms. So much of this is, um, is often based around people feeling like there's something really, really wrong or abnormal, but it's, as I said before, it's actually about a really normal reaction to an abnormal pressure that they've been placed under so that just that normalization itself can be hugely powerful and therapeutic i know um this is not necessarily your area but um help for heroes also offers a lot of um, physical support for those who are physically injured can you tell us a little bit about that i know it's not your area but (laughs) if you could let us know what help for heroes offers yeah sure um no it's it's obviously um I'm being a psychologist, but it makes it a little difficult. But but we have a brilliant team of um, clinical liaison staff who provide referral and linking support for beneficiaries. So the kind of the crux of that is about helping people to get the right support at the right time and as close to home as possible. So there's some classic examples of individuals, beneficiaries that have had... um, amputations who may go to a mainstream GP and there was an example um, somebody actually spoke about recently where a beneficiary had an infection in one of their amputation sites and they couldn't get the right treatment quickly enough from their GP because their GP wasn't familiar with um, the impact of a blast injury. It's not not the kind of thing most GPs come across every day, is it? So um, our clinical liaison um, team is there as a huge source of um, information and referral support uh, for not only for beneficiaries but also for other medical professionals to be able to link them to specialist care as quickly as possible. So one of the things that um, our medical services are involved at the moment is. Um, we, we funded 50%, I think of the, I think it's 50% I'm sure. <laughs> uh, of a study called the Advanced Study. Yeah. And that's actually looking at the long-term impact of serious injury. And that's a really important study because so many of the, the, the men and women coming back from um, battlegrounds like Iraq and Afghan have got injuries that back in World War One were not, not considered to be not survivable. Mm. So these triple amputees that, um, that we see from Afghan and 
Iraq, for example, really weren't around in World War One. They didn't make it through. So the medical advances on the battlefield to keep those individuals alive has actually been now, I mean, it's gone into supporting um, car crash victims and, and things like that. So there's a kind of knock on effect and benefit for everybody. Um, but we use that, we're going to look at that advanced study to be able to better map the needs mm. of those that have come back with such um, life changing injuries. Because the reality is, is we don't really know. We don't know the long term impacts and we don't know necessarily if the interventions that they got at the time, how they have impacted on them for the next 20 years moving mm. forward. So. Um, that's part of the work that our, our clinical services team do, which is really essential, not only in delivering support now, but starting to think about the needs um, for, for people in the future. So it's quite a key role. Is there a psychological element to that? Um, obviously, people coming home with life-changing injuries, do you find that they also need a lot of psychological support? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's actually it's quite a massive overlap. Mm. So uh, the study that has been done has looked at the estimated prevalence of psychological and medical needs for those that have returned from Afghan and Iraq, and it's predicted that there's it's upwards of sixty-six thousand that are going to have some form of need for support with either psychological or medical or both. Mm-hmm. So the, a huge proportion of that is actually what we call dual diagnosis or complex needs. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, obviously, yes, if you've had, um, you know, really complex, severe injuries, I mean, the obvious thing is pain, mm-hmm. difficulties with mobility. How does that impact on that person's ability to get a job or care for themselves? And over time, how does that then begin to impact on their self-esteem, their self-worth, their sense of autonomy, all of those, all of those types of things. So, um, yeah, some of the work that Help for Heroes does, obviously, is around helping people um, focus on what they can do, though, which can be hugely protective, rather, rather than focusing on what they can't do now as a result of those injuries. Um, Help for Heroes has done so much work to help people um, be able to get back and you know re- support people to become go on to be elite sports people. But actually, sometimes it's just about being able to support somebody to play basketball again, who thought maybe they'd never be able to do that. So it might be linking them in with a wheelchair basketball team or mm-hmm. something like that. But so many of those that are coming forward for help now um, are, are having more complex needs. And looking into the future, we expect that to become more and more. That's what we witnessed uh, in Australia and the US after Vietnam, is that over time, uh, the medical and the psychological needs started to increase and we're getting more and more people with complex needs coming forward. Sometimes people will start to drink Mm -hmm. as a way of dealing with uh, complex pain or dealing with nightmares, for example. So you can really quickly see how the problems can start to stack up and become more and more difficult to um, unravel, really. Some people who listen to this might be thinking that UK troop involvement has been scaled back hugely in Afghanistan and now they're, you know, mainly fulfilling mentoring and training roles. And is there still going to be a need in the next five, ten years, considering we're no longer at war? for the services that Help for Heroes provides and you know your other charities that you work very closely with 
is there still going to be a need for you guys to exist and be active on such a large scale? How, how do you think it's going to develop? Do you think that you'll just need to maintain as you are or do you think you'll see a different type of need coming through in terms of support in the next few years? I would love to say that I think the need is going to decrease, but it, the reality is that it's highly unlikely that that will be the case. What we expect and what we know from looking um, to the research and the experiences internationally is that it's more likely, and it's definitely what we're seeing now, is that the needs are going to increase. So looking at some recent research that came out from Australia, it's a long-term study, looking at the mental health needs of their, um, specifically looking at the army in Australia, and it's looking at the mental health of those seven years beyond when they actually leave service. And what they've found is that for the first 12 months, there's a kind of a protective bubble almost around that, that veteran as he, as he leaves. And their mental health needs seem to almost be uh, lower than the normal population. But after 12 months, so 12 months after they've left the armed forces, the need for psychological support and the mental health needs actually start to emerge and they start to increase quite significantly. Um, we expect that that pattern is going to happen in the UK and it is actually what we're already starting to find. So the most recent data coming from KCL, for example, is, is starting to show that the rates of PTSD are starting to increase over time rather than decrease over time. And that would be in line with the experience of the Australian and the US forces when they returned from Vietnam. So there was a gradual increase over time uh, as you know, the more time that elapsed from when the war finished, actually often people sort of stop thinking about it. You know, there's not pictures on TV anymore of, of guys coming home. But what actually happens is, is the needs of um, those that were wounded, injured and sick tend to increase and get more complicated as well. So not only do we have more coming forward for help, but because they've waited often, um, there's been more time for those needs to get more tricky to deal with and more complicated to support. Um, as I said earlier, some of it is around, they've found other ways to cope to get through their daily life. Sometimes those coping strategies themselves are not particularly helpful. So um, a, a classic one, as I said earlier, is, is drinking. But there's other common types of ways of um, dealing with feeling stressed and anxious when you're out in um, the civilian world. So quite often being really angry and, ir and irritability is a big problem for those a few years after they've left. They start to realise that their way of... Um, perhaps getting other people to leave them alone has left them alone. So they can start to feel quite isolated, have difficulty holding down a job. Um, their families can start to get a bit tired of, um, I guess, their mood swings and, and things like that. So often there's family breakdown as well. So over time, the needs get more complex. So the services need to be there, not only to support 
the numbers coming forward, but the increasing complexity of those that are coming forward. And there's a preventative measure as well, I imagine. Absolutely. I, I mean, a big part of what we're starting to look at is thinking about how can we get people to come forward as soon as as sooner as the sooner the better, really, because it does prevent. Um, things getting to a point where they are so complex and more difficult to work with and, and support and treat. So Help for Heroes has such a wide range of services on offer. So we can support with welfare needs. We have a career recovery team as well who can support with getting people into work, training. It may not be paid employment even. It's just that kind of sense of identity and pride of being able to go and do volunteer work. Um, so we've also got the medical support teams and the psychological support teams. So it's likely that over time we're going to have to get better and better at working holistically rather than um, scaling anything back, unfortunately. And obviously that will mean that on your side of things, Pippa, that yeah. it needs more engagement from the public and from businesses and, and, and at a governmental level as well. Have you found it's been dipping away slightly in terms of levels of support? Have you seen a different change in trends on that? I think it's it's fair to say that um, it has maybe become a little bit harder over the last few years. I think a lot of charities probably found it's become harder over the last few years in terms of keeping support going and as um, we've already kind of touched on we still, we very much still need to be here for those we're supporting, and our need is growing. But with having had the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan very much coming to a close, they're not in the public eye as much. So we've kind of fallen out a little bit of the of the public eye, and so we're having to work quite hard just to make sure people know that we are still here, we are still needed, we are still supporting people, and and for those that we support as well, we very much want them to know that we're here, if we're going to be here for them. For life that we're not gonna this support isn't gonna fall away that we are going to be that is our commitment to be there for as long as they they need us and we have some really fantastic supporters obviously they're not there and the campaign are um have been fantastic over the last year um but we do we do still need to be there and and have a lot of work to do to make sure that people know that and that people carry on supporting the fantastic work that people like um karen um are, are doing as you just said there, Help for Heroes is now 11, um, and the success you've had over the past decade has just been huge. Um, I think you're probably one of the most well-known charities. I think most of our listeners will have heard of you before. What is coming up in the future? Um, what What are your new projects? What are you planning for the, for the next 11 years? I'm not sure I can answer quite <laughs> from my perspective for 11 years, but um, I can tell you what's coming up <laughs> sooner than that. Um, so we have, um, in the immediate future, we've got um, a fantastic collaboration with one of um, our partner charities, both in terms of working with um, them in, in Karen's world and in psychological support, walking with the wounded, so we have referrals, but also they're obviously one of the beneficiary charities of um, there but not there yep. as well um, and we are working with them over Christmas um, on our campaign walking home for Christmas um, so we're encouraging everybody to set up their their own walks across the country to fundraise and um, to support our wounded, injured and sick veterans um, by uh, taking part in a walk the walk can be anywhere um, anytime that you want it to be we send out support and fundraising pack for those who want to get involved and obviously a festive santa hat um, right. so that you can um, look very festive while you're doing it 
um, and sign up on the Walking Home for Christmas um, site, which you can find either by going to Help the Heroes or Walking with the Wounded's um, websites. And we'll link that below, of okay. course. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're <laughs> doing it nice as well, actually, aren't we? The, we are, yes. The Remember team will You're be taking involved. part. You're going to be yes. walking home yeah. for Christmas. Well, it's um, easy for me. I've only got like a half-hour walk. Nikki's <laughs> got like two hours to yeah. get back. <laughs> well, we um, really want to highlight um, the fact that a lot of um, veterans... Um, Christmas might actually be a really tough time for them over Christmas. Um, they're a lot more likely um, to feel isolated over the Christmas period and maybe not have such a good um, family support network um, than a lot of other people in the UK generally. We are encouraging people to take part in this walk um, to really bring home the fact that you ha- you you know you've got a lovely home to be walking back to over Christmas, but that might not always be the case for a lot of people who. Um, we support and also highlighting the fact that we are there and a lot of the time the community that Help for Heroes provides and Walking with the Wounded provides as well can become a lot like a second family for a lot of people and provides them with a community and a network for that support and help them kind of uh, start um, feeling like their lives have have purpose and are fulfilled um, again so that's a lot of what we're trying to do we're promoting the event and making, making sure people are getting involved. Well, we are. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And we are as well. We've got one to come going from here. So, fantastic. In December. So. Brilliant. Well, I, yeah, I hope everyone gets involved with that. Um, fantastic initiative. Just briefly before we finish, it seems, having spoken to you guys, which I wasn't as aware of before, that collaboration between military charities seems to be A, picking up, and B, hugely effective. From both of your sides, you know, the, the different work you guys do, is this something you think really needs to be worked at going forward, is, is collaborating with other charities or military charities who might have a different speciality or a different base that they deal with? Is that something you're looking to do? Yeah. I mean, I think it happens a lot more than people realise it has to because um, everyone's got their different uh, strengths and specialities. Um, so as Karen's already said a lot, we, we work a huge amount in recovery areas um, about referrals and, um, and working with other charities and um, partners to make sure those pathways are really strong and really um, work best for, for the veterans. And easy for them. And easy, yeah, friends, absolutely. Yeah. Make it much more accessible. We are, we are doing it really well and we would just really like to make sure that it's as, as good for the people that we're supporting as it possibly can be. We're, we're doing a lot of work at not replicating because obviously there's only finite resources. So it is really, really essential that we um, collaborate and we communicate clearly with our partner organisations about what it is that we can provide and we can offer. Um, a big piece of work that, that we do is actually looking to find where the gaps are. So rather than um, a, a sort of running off with all our own ideas, it's actually starting to think about, well, what are we already exists and where are the gaps and how can we improve somebody's recovery journey as they go between different services um, and, and what can we do to make that seamless and well supported and improve not only the individual's quality of life and outcomes but also the experience for the family and those around them as well because it's really important to think about um, recovery as a as the entire system mental health challenges don't just impact on the individual they often impact on the family as well 
So yeah, we, we obviously can't provide all of that ourselves. So it's essential that we communicate. And I do think it's getting better. It is getting better and better. And there's organizations like Contact that are working really, really hard to um, improve the communication and improve the collaboration between organizations. So we, we are actually, I think, getting a lot better at supporting each other and appropriately um, encouraging those veterans to sometimes go to a different organization who's going to be able to deliver about that specific area. Well, thank you so much to both of you. Um, I think that's probably all we've got time for today. Thank you so much everyone for listening and in particular for listening to the whole the whole series and staying yeah. with us. Thank you so much Karen, thank you so much Pippa. This is the last episode of the series, so we also want to say a big thank you to all of our guests, all of our listeners, and everyone who's contributed with stories, etc. We really hope you've enjoyed being a part of our project, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you all again next year. While Armistice Day has passed, our need to commemorate, educate, and heal continues. You can still buy a Tommy to support our project and raise money for our six beneficiary charities, including Help for Heroes. Please do check out some of the fantastic people who have supported our golden ticket promotion. You could win a signed thank you from Arnold Schwarzenegger, Harry Kane, the Red Arrows and many more. You have until the end of November 2018 to enter, so please do get involved with that. You would absolutely love who we've got available there. Links to everything we've talked about, as I said before, will be below and in our show notes on our website. And thank you again for tuning in over the last 11 weeks. You can keep up to date with what we're doing and our plans for next year if you sign up to our monthly newsletter and follow us at Remembered2018 on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This week, once more, we'll be playing out with the There But Not There single and you can download this via iTunes and we will leave the link for that below as well. Every download gives us a little bit of extra money and helps with our fundraising. And don't forget, please do leave us a review and help share the podcast with your friends and family.